Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Welcome to Centerpoint Church. If we've never met, my name is Aaron Master. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we now have a 9 and 10:30 service every Sunday. Both are one. They're both one-hour service with a mission to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We do here what any good Christian church should do, which is help you connect with God in a worshipful way, and then help you grow in your relationship with Him. Uh, we just may be a bit different. Our style might be a little different, but we're still true to the Bible. We take God very seriously, and we want to help you in your walk with God weekly. This week, we're continuing a, a newer series called Healing. And the second you maybe hear me say Healing. Some of you are instantly thinking, oh, this might get weird. Nope, not so fast. Don't worry about that. The healing we're talking about is the healing and recovering from things almost all of us have experienced uh, or will experience at some point, yet struggle to actually handle or have a clear way of how to process it or know how to get to the other side of it on. Uh, things like failure, loss, shame, fear, how do you actually heal from those things? And how have you healed from those things in the past? How does God want you to heal from those things? That's what we're going to analyze in this series by looking to the Bible. We're going to also look at experience of others that are part of our church. And then also experience that a, a professional counselor advises, or professional Christian counselor advises, and see where those three things intersect. Uh, this week we're talking all about loss. I've recently... Uh, I got to share this with you. I recently experienced a significant amount of loss, daily actually, uh, especially as I age to the point where I'm like angry, frustrated, tearing up the house, yelling at my wife to help, feeling restricted of only being at the house, and kind of nervous I'm going to be able to achieve my daily things without my phone, wallet, or keys, of course. You know, like stressing about those things every day. Uh, Y'all been there. You've lost stuff before. It's an embarrassing daily issue for me, but it's experiencing actually a loss of control of having things on my timing. But that same feeling of loss of control can be carried over exp exponentially more to other things more than stuff, right? With a loss of control of serious things, a loss that if it were in our control, that family member would still be here. That friend would still be here, that child, the, the job, the view on your health, or your ability, or the city you moved from, or the loss of, uh, of acceptance, or maybe a security, or security personally, spouse, a possession, maybe even just a time period for you. Loss is a part of the human life, pain that, that God never intended for us to experience, but we do. In Genesis 2.17, it, it says this. It says, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We were created, is what it's showing, created to live without death, without pain, loss, grief. Yet we do. We experience loss, so we have to learn how to deal with it here on earth. I didn't even look this one up. But uh, statistics point that 100% of us at some point will experience loss. So how do we deal with it? How do we heal from it the way God would want us to? Before we dive in, though, to talking about kind of the sensitive issue, right? I want to give you a forewarning. This is not a typical message of mine. Usually messages here at Centerpoint are 
they're, I don't like saying this, they're, they're, they're like a romantic comedy is kind of how I want to describe it. They're captivating, maybe a funny intro, tension in the middle that maybe you can relate with, with myself. Uh, and then at the end, it all kind of resolves and you have encouragement or ideas from Scripture of things that we can act on or do to change or to make sure that we have a change in our lives. But just because like a message is like this doesn't mean my church or this church or my or my theology is light. It's actually the opposite. Uh, we are action-based, relatable, like Jesus was. Some of y'all might be, not love this church just because we're too pushy here. It's always like do do do, or it's always like try this thing or make this thing happen instead of like wow, great information. That was so interesting to think about. Here it's all about action. Now you got to do something about it, change, live it out. Well, anyways, today's sermon is not like that. It's not a romantic comedy. So no, Adam Sandler is not going to show up somewhere in my, in my sermon. Uh, that means also Rob Schneider is not also going to be showing up. If you know Adam Sandler movies, you totally get the joke. Uh, but with today's topic, though, it's not a romantic comedy. There's no real resolve with grief and with, with loss. There's only perspective shift time management, presence ideas, and how to process grief. Because grief is a lifelong process, not a state or a stage. Again, grief is a process, not just a temporary stage. And to help us in our lifelong process of grief, both personally and in helping others with their grief, we're going to look at some biblical truths because Scripture says this. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest or relief or being pain-free sounds kind of good. But how with some of the loss we've all experienced? To give you a little background on the loss I've personally experienced in the grief, like for, for real this time, is I've dealt with the loss of loved ones, loss of my health control, loss of a home. Uh, I've counseled with people who have lost children, spouses, uh, ch uh, parents, and friends. I've seen a fair share, but I'm going to be real with you today. I'm not going to pretend I have like the exact answers that, that from God of like how to handle these grief struggles or that I know the grief that you're going through and that it's, that it's easy or that I feel, I've had it worse than you. No, not at all. Grief is real. Loss is real. And everyone is different. The things I do know about grief is it sucks. It sucks. It doesn't go away quickly. It's here and it comes back again and goes away and it comes back. It impacts so little and then all of a sudden everything. And many times when you're in a moment of grief, when you're grieving, the last thing you want is some cleaned up Christian saying, God's with you. Yay. Or just pray. Everything happens for a reason. Experience his peace. He won't give you more than you can handle. Let me just pray for you and lay hands on you. And you're like, let me lay hands on you, right? It's kind of how you're feeling in those situations. More often than not, it's, it's hard. It's hard to heal from grief personally, and it's hard to know how to help others deal with grief as well. So really, what can we do with grief? What can we do with it? What does the Bible say about it? And that's what we're going to look at today. Things you can process to help you and others grieve better. And then alongside with like mindset shifts of things you could do in your wrestling with grief. If you look to the Bible, there's multiple loss-like situations. Uh, but one stands out as just plain old rough. 
Some of y'all maybe know, if you know the Bible well, uh, you maybe know the person I'm talking about. It's Job. Job has experienced some significant loss in his lifetime. We're going to look at Job and his story, and it's actually a book in the Bible called Job. And a little bit of context you need to know about the book of Job is this. Job was written about 2000, in about 2000 B.C., it's known as the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, it's written in kind of this poetic-like nature to, to not purely just be this boring historical account. Um, some say it can be straight-up historical or it can be straight-up uh, written in a way that is actual. Well, others say maybe it's just a way to help us understand grief and how to understand how God is dealing with the big picture of things. You can decide for yourself. But it's also, Job is this ginormous book with 40-some chapters in it. It's mainly about this one man named Job who has it all, wishes he was dead, and then has it all again. Uh, and it's also, uh, you see a lot where he wrestles with grief and wrestles with the question, why? Why, God? This isn't fair. Why? Have you been there? Have you been there before with grief? Why? Why is this happening? Why do I have to deal with this? Why me? I know I have. So we're going to look at Job. And to give you a, a five-minute summary of Job in a 40-plus chapter book in the Bible, it starts with Job showing up. Job is this wealthy man. He's got a large family. He's kind of seen as this rich person. He's seen as blameless with God. And he's kind of the pastor to his family. Everything is going right for him and his family. Well, the story goes, one day Satan and God converse, and God boasts to Satan about Job's goodness. But Satan argues, it's only because he's got such a great life is why he, he's so good. And a challenge happens where God allows Satan to torment Job to test his bold claim to find out. But he forbids Satan to kill him or to take his life in the process. So as you can see, it's kind of got this like poetic nature to it, right? Well, what happens next is all in one day, Job gets multiple messages from other people. It's this. He gets, your oxen were plowing with the donkeys, feeding beside them. Then the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And by the way, I'm the only one who escaped to tell you this. Uh, another time, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then another message he gets. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then he gets one more message. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. He's probably like, awesome. Suddenly a powerful wind swept from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you this. Yikes, right? Intense grief. Want to know what happens next? Verse 20 says this, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. No, he's not going crazy here. He's mourning traditionally in biblical times. And then it says in verse 22, Job did not sin by blaming God. The story then goes, uh, Satan appears in heaven again, and, and I'm guessing he's kind of cowering to God, and, and uh, he, God gives him another chance to test Job. And Job's health this time is attacked. It was skin sores all over his body, so much so that his wife says this, uh, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. I guess extra credit tip for today, uh, don't be like Job's wife. Um, but anyways, in verse 10, how he responds is this. You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? 
So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Do you hear what he's saying? Sometimes tough things come our way for testing, for reflecting, for protection, for things that could be a part of a bigger picture. Well, what happens next is Job has three friends that come and visit him, and they see, like, he's kind of distressed. Again, he's shaving his head. He's kind of ripped off his clothes. And what they do is they sit with Job for seven days out of respect for his mourning in silence. Can you imagine that? Seven days of complete silence. Job breaks the silence, curses the day he was born, and then he starts comparing life to death, and he starts getting all, like, metaphorical. And then what happens is the four men that came to visit him, his friends, they're sick of being silent. They're sick of what Job's doing, and they, say, they start feeling they need to share why Job is dealing with this. So what happens is one believes Job's agony must be due to some sin Job committed. The other thinks that maybe Job committed some evil. Uh, and then the last thinks that, like, you know what? Maybe you should just be thankful for what you, what you experienced because it could be worse. It could be worse. Job's friends are basically dropping this line like, so what'd you do? Why is this happening to you? And then guess on what they think it is. But this is what Job says to them in response. He says, as for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you are worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. I've never heard anyone use that term before. You're a worthless quack. Um, maybe I just gave you a new name-calling word. I don't know. But anyways, it, I've never called anyone that. It's biblical, though. But totally okay, right? No, not so much. But after making plain, uh, pains to assert his uh, blameless character, Job ponders his, his relationship with God. He's like, what's going on with my relationship with you? He wishes someone could mediate between him and, jo or him and God. And he, he's just asking God to just get rid of him. Like, I'm sick of this life. Well, Job's friends, again, are sitting there and they're kind of offended of what Job is asking and saying. They think his questions to God are just crafty. They lack of trust and they lack fear of God. They lack belief in God. And Job is like, you quacks. You know, he's probably saying that again. He keeps his confidence in spite of their criticisms, responding that even if there's been evil done, it's his own personal problem. After a while, he, he just grows, he grows sarcastic and patient and just done with these, these friends. So he focuses on himself. He laments to the injustice he experienced that God lets wicked people prosper while he and countless others suffer who he sees as innocent. Almost bartering with God. Like, why do, why do good people experience this God? To add to the party, another friend shows up and he also assumes, hey, did you commit some sin or do something wrong? Maybe, maybe that's why, like, you're dealing with this grief. And then finally, like, Job's had enough... God's had enough of the whole situation. God finally interrupts and he says, calling from a whirlwind, he, he demands Job to be brave and the show, uh, God shows Job how little he knows about creation, how little he knows about what the big picture of what is going on. Like imagine, you know, you got the earth and how small Job is in the midst of all of that, of even the universe, right? But Job acknowledges God's unlimited power then when God speaks to him. And he admits the limitations of his human knowledge. And once again, in Job 42, verse 1, it says, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. 
over time, God returns Job's health, providing him with twice as much property, new children, and an extremely long life. Woo, right? It's an intense story. Job goes through this process of grief, but if we're honest with ourselves, I think it's in such a way that is still so common to us 4,000 years later. We see he's mad, he's angry, he's doubting, he's saddened, he's debating with God. He's trying to figure out why. Why me? Have you dealt with that before? Wondered that? Have you felt that in your grief and loss before? Have you seen that in other people's grief and loss? Modern counselors today, they tend to agree uh, with the research done by this, this person named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and they concluded that there's generally five stages of, gr of a grieving process. It's, it's denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. Uh, those are generally five different types of it. It doesn't have to follow a linear path. It can be kind of crazy. But denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, sometimes not in that particular order, but they happen. And we can see that Job experienced some of those. But again, what about you? What about you? Are you going through grief and loss and experiencing maybe one of these? Do you have a friend or loved one that you notice is experiencing one of these? What can you do to help yourself? What can you do to help them in that process? Well, seeing how Job grieved and wrestled with God to get to a point of acceptance and living with it, and then still being connected to God, we're going to analyze some of the specifics he did. Some of the specifics he did, along with insight from modern counselors, along with insight from you guys, some of, some of the people that are part of this church, and see where all three intersect, and see what we can do to, to grieve better. But scripture ultimately is driving what we share here. So if you want to know how to better grieve or how to help someone grieve better, this is the time to listen in. Since grief and loss is so different for each and every one of us, we're going to kind of do a universal way to look at it and think about it uh, for these last 10 minutes of the message. We're going to do it the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. A death of a beloved, or how we're going to grieve, is an amputation. We're going to think as if we got an amputation done. Uh, and yeah, we're going to take out our chainsaw and uh, cut some things off. Ready for this? All right. Just in our minds. Just in our minds. No, no real amputations. All right. Uh, we're going to pretend we lost a foot. Y'all with me? Nod your head. You're all with me? All right, great. We lost a foot. And because of that loss, there are changes in our life that are going to happen, that are permanent, right? We instantly realize grief over that loss, it's a process, not a stage. It's a process, not a stage. We're not just going to go through a, a moment without a foot. A foot is not just going to like heal back over time or come back. All of a sudden, whoa, I got another foot, sweet. Job, he lost his family, his health, his past wealth, and his mood and feelings change all over the place in the book, right? He's mad, but he's still blessing God. He's questioning, he's angry, and then all of a sudden he's got a family again. But even still, it's not like everything's better with a new family. Like, oh, I got a new family now. It's no big deal. It was a process of getting to a healed state about the situation, about what happened in the past. Did you know the average human loses every minute of the day 30 to 40,000 dead skin cells? That's disgusting thinking about what we got going on right now. 
But it's normal also for humans to lose about 50 to 100 hairs every day. That's disgusting too, some of us more than others, as I can see out there. Uh, and after, another thing too that you lose, after about the milestone of about 40, I'm not quite there yet, you'll start to notice it's a bit harder to focus in on things that are close up to you uh, or objects that are close. You start losing your eyesight. And then even just think, growing up, you maybe had your favorite shirt and it ended up getting old and it ended up not fitting. As an adult, if you have a shirt that starts getting too small, that's a problem. Uh, that's a personal problem. That's, that's never a good sign for us, right? You've lost a lot of stuff over the years. You might not even realize it, but you've learned to lose stuff before. Sure, maybe these are small things, yet you've learned how to lose these things over the years. It's the same with grieving, right? Grieving a big loss. You may be in a tough stage, but it's a process of grieving. And can be tough even after accepting the loss. But you're processing it. You're processing it. Remember, we're without a foot right now, right? We're without a foot because we just did an amputation. Do you think people that actually only have one foot, do you think people actually only with one foot, do you think like they never grieve about that as they've come to acceptance about it? Of course they still grieve about it. Of course they still like, I wish they had a, a second foot. But do you think they've learned how to process it? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Most have learned to process it. There's, there's a ton of people who have lived without a, a foot. Look at this guy here. Uh, his, name is, uh, his name is Anthony Robes, and he's an American wrestler. He's got one leg, one foot. He won the NCAA in 2010-2011 as a wrestler with one foot. Insane, right? Insane. Here, check out this little video of him like doing some of his things. I was kind of choking back tears, but I just remember standing there you know, I'm going to give him one last one to remember me by. And, uh, you know, I'm going to leave it all on. Crazy, right? There's another person, Lance Benson is his name. He completed a marathon with zero feet. He did it on a board. And then, I'm not even going to pretend that, that I know how to pronounce this name. It's like Sue Johanna. She cared for over 100 children in an orphanage with zero feet. With zero feet, legless. They never just get over the loss. They've processed how to continue living with that loss. Now with all of that, when we apply that to our personal grief, are you thinking it's a stage or are you learning how to process it? When you're guiding a friend, are you in a process with them or are you just thinking you're helping them through this temporary stage? I was talking to someone here at church and I asked them, uh, how did you get through this tough time of grieving? And they stated this. They said, I will never get over the death of my son, but I have learned how to survive it. That's powerful, right? That's powerful. Have you accepted that? Have you been able to understand that for another person, there's stages of grief, but you will forever process it? The second thing we see Job do is he, he takes time to grieve with God. In order to process and move forward in your processing, grieving, it needs to happen. Job grieved his family, his health, his wealth. Again, verse 20, it says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He grieves, but he still worships. He grieves connected to God. 
If you talk to any Christian counselor or any counselor out there today, they say you have to grieve. You have to just go through grieving. Even if we feel totally fine at first, they say grieving is so important. As part of this series, there's been a, a professional counselor that I've kind of consulted with and worked with personally, um, but also to advise each of our four weeks of, of this, this series. And she's like 90. She's like this like person of wisdom to me that like I kind of go to. She's got thousands of hours of counseling and she's like dealt with everything. But anyways, she says this, when we run into a grief-filled situation, she says the shock at the beginning buffers us from seeing the depth of the loss. She's telling me this. So she says, so don't push one to look at the reality. God slowly reveals it as we are ready. Then deeper grief comes. Most will try to mask it, not wanting to deal with it. And as we let ourselves feel the grief, we become strong enough to own the loss. Grief, tears, sadness, it's part of the process. And setting a time to be fully revealed, or letting it be fully revealed, it's important. I'm going to be a bit raw and honest with you right now for a second and vulnerable. Um, I'm a real man, uh, just in case you didn't know. I'm a real man, but, but because of that, I don't grieve or cry. Because real men don't cry. I'm being sarcastic right now. It's, it's kind of a joke. But to be fully transparent with you, I am a man, so I honestly, I don't cry in public. I don't cry in public. Honestly, maybe that's a perception or strength issue that I deal with internally or I deal with inside, but I, it's just something I don't do. I choose not to do it. And I'm guessing some of you maybe can relate to that, whether you're a man or a woman too. But because that's maybe, or that's my or maybe uh, your perception as well about crying in public, it doesn't mean grieving and maybe actually shedding tears is wrong or not important for you to do. Grieving is important. It's okay to maybe hide it from the public if that's your preference, but it still needs to happen. It still needs to happen. If you're a Christian person or one who just is fighting grieving, I'm guessing you feel you kind of got to be put all together for others, right? We feel grief and tears, they're, they're the sign of weakness. Or, or we also feel that like maybe if we grieve, our, our faith must not be strong. Like that's, that's, a, that's a wrong thing. Or we feel we got to shove it somewhere else. We're afraid to question or be angry with God. Yet we see it's natural from Job. He cries. He grieves. Uh, if you look at Job 30, 20, he says this, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Job questioned him. He wrestled him. He, he got angry at him. He yelled at him. He tried to take him to court even, if you read the whole book. But even in his anger and grieving, he never left God out of the picture. When you're grieving, stay close to God. Stay close to God. And what that means is continue to pray. Continue to reach out to Him. Continue to be plugged into your church community, into your life group. Keep grieving, but keep close to God. I've been in ministry for 10 years or so now. Uh, this is not the typical response of people when they're grieving, is not to stay close to God. It's not very typical. Uh, and what happens usually is Y'all love church. People love church. They're like, this is so amazing. You make changes. You like see it as like, this is so good. Life is so good. But then something happens. Life hurts a bit. Last time you were at church, the sermon's like, meh. It's like, just okay. And then church is kind of, meh. It's just okay. And your relationship with God starts to kind of be like, ah, it's all right. Because your life is kind of meh. And you grieve it alone without God. Take the time to grieve but with God, but with God. Grieving is a process. Sit in it and grieve it. 
When everything happened, Job, when he, he didn't make giant changes, he grieved it. He, it wasn't like, oh, we're empty nesters now. We lost all our kids. Let's start making kids again. Or, oh, we, we lost our fields. Let's, let's buy more, more property. Or, oh, let's, let's all of a sudden, like, let's, let's repopulate everything. He sat in his grief. He sat in it. Don't rush into something when you're grieving. This is the advice I heard over and over from people I talked to as part of our church and then also the counselor. Someone said this, you don't want to rush into anything new, but always be open to an invite or help, even if you may not think you desired it at the moment. The counselor I've been working with, she stated this, people who are grieving distract themselves from the grief. Often I've seen grieving people immediately redecorate their house, get into a new relationship, etc. My advice, do not make any life-changing decisions for three years because decisions made too quickly are reactions. Now this isn't scripture, right? This isn't scripture. This is a counselor. So you've got to do what's best for you. But if we look at the scripture of Job, he sat in his grief. He sat in it with God. Are you sitting? Are you grieving? Is God still a part of it? The last bit of a uh, big thing that we see in times of grieving is, is being with people. Be with people, whether you're the griever or whether you're the person helping the griever. Be with people. Show up. Invite them to things still. Spend time with them. Job's friends, they do that, right? We, we see his friends show up. His four friends come up, which is awesome. They're there for him for a little bit. They embrace the awkward of him, like, grieving, ripping off his clothes, shaving his head. You're probably like, this is kind of weird and different. And they're literally silent with him for seven days. Again, can you imagine that? Intense, right? But then they ruin it. They ruin it by saying something dumb, by sharing an opinion, by sharing what they or why they think he's dealing with it and how he should grieve about it. Yet this is what Job says to them. He says in 13.5, if only you could be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. What this teaches us, when you're with someone, don't say something stupid. Be with them, though. Don't say something stupid. Be with them. This is personally really hard for me. I hate awkward. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I can't stand silence. And I definitely don't want someone to be hurting that I'm with, right? So I try to fix it. This week, I've, re- I've had to reflect on this as I was reading Job and how I, I haven't done that well. So what I picture myself having to do now, I know I've been making a lot of references to men today, but uh, I picture myself riding in an old truck with an old man, all right? So I, how I'm like reflecting on this point is I'm in an old truck with an old man, a meat and potatoes type man, a routine type of man, a let's get work done type of man, like let's talk or less talk, more doing type of man. Let's not make eye, can't, eye contact. Let's not make small talk. Let's just look straight ahead and be together, right? Just sitting with the other person. Now, maybe this is a bit of an extreme example, but just sitting, being with the person, don't feel you have to fix it. Don't feel you have to fix it. Don't feel you have to say the right thing or the right answer. Because sometimes comments meant for good hurt. They hurt, actually. Like the cliche Christian sayings, like, he won't give you more than you can handle. It's actually a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. What the verse actually says is, he won't tempt you more than you can handle. Don't say he won't give you more than you can handle, because sometimes you're experiencing more than you can handle. Or everything happens for a reason. That's not really true either. Sometimes bad stuff happens. Everything can have a purpose after, but that's maybe not what people want to hear in the moment. So often, the best thing to say is, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And 
then just be with them. Invite them to the normal things you always did. Take the burden of the awkward silence for yourself, even if it's more than seven days. See them grieving. Embrace being the burden for them. Scripture wants us to. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Are you doing that, or are you trying to fix it? Again, these are the three things we can see in Job. Knowing it's a process for life, not just a stage. Taking time to grieve with God, and then being with others. Are the three things we can see counseling people in Scripture recommend. These are things that help Job get through one of the most devastating situations, right? Which one do you need to make sure you do? Which one do you need to make sure that you do for others? Do you need to stop trying to forget what happened and just learn how to process it? Process it. Maybe for you, you, you need to actually grieve it. You need to actually take time, time to grieve. Go on your own. Cry. Let yourself be depressed. Let yourself be hurt. Let, fight it. Wrestle with God. Argue with God. It's all good. We see that in Job but making sure you don't withdraw from God. Stay connected. Or do you need to be with people, the right people, the ones who will just be with you, listen with you, and mourn with you? As I wrap up, I want to remind you this, this isn't a romantic comedy sermon, right? Where everything's fixed. What it is, is it's sitting in it, waiting, processing. Job sat in it. He sat in it. He learned to process it, grieved it with God, and tried to be with others. The thing that ultimately got him through was his relationship with God. It, it was a wrestling match of anger and trying to understand, which was a process that ended with God giving him answers and understanding and blessings over time. Know that God wants to do that for you too. He wants to do that for you too. Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to be with you in tough times. It's, it's not going to make your life easy for you, but it won't be alone. It won't be alone. And as you've seen God work through Job's life, you can heal and recover too with God. If you want to ask him to help you do that, uh, I'm going to pray in a second that God does guide us in that. But then I'm also going to pray for us to make sure that we're helping others grieve as well and making sure we're doing the God-honoring things in that regard as well. If you want to pray with me right now, we'll pray and have the band come up. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, giving us a clear example of sometimes life is just tough. Sometimes we don't know the big picture of what's going on. But God, as, as we grieve, as we experience hurt that you never intended for us, some of us right now, we want to say, God, we want you to help us. We want you there with us, guiding us, getting us, getting us through a point where we're processing it, and we're making sure that we're still connected to you. God, I just pray that uh, you make yourself evident to us. And then, God, some of us right now, we, we know friends that are struggling. Give us, give us the, the right moves or the right things to do with our friends that are grieving so that we can do it in a God-honoring way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.